Hello, nice to be with you. Um, as Katie said, my name's Duncan. I'm part of the staff team here uh, and have been for a few years. We're going to be continuing in 1 Samuel, our Dawn of a Kingdom series. So if you have a Bible, do turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and we'll read from verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. <laughs> Quite a way to introduce yourself to someone, isn't it? You can try it yourself after the meeting if you like. Perhaps insert your own factual observation of the person you're meeting. <laughs> Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Samuel duly does so and tells them just how terrible their lives are going to be under the reign of a king. Uh, unfortunately, picking it up in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. The story of chapters 4, 5, and 6, as we looked at last week in 1 Samuel, are the story of catastrophic defeat for the Israelites at the hands of the Philistines. And chapter 7, which we haven't had a chance to look at, is the story of, in 4, 5, and 6, they had a rather wonky view of God and how they should relate to him and how God would uh, be there for them. And... Um, and chapter 7 is the story of the Israelites returning to God, seemingly with all their heart, we'll see in a moment, returning to God with all their heart, and then God instantaneously delivering results for them, being undoubtedly it was God that then led to them defeating the Philistines and granting them peace over their land. So essentially delivering to them all that they could ever have dreamed of and hoped for. And so we would think... Well, surely now the Israelites, having got right with God, will have learned their lesson. They will be delighted, delighted with God now being their king. He has, now they've come back to him, he has given them everything they could ever want. Surely he'll, they'll never reject him or go against him. Well, as we have seen in their passage, they immediately following on from the end of chapter 7, where all of that happens, we have chapter 8. They come to Samuel, God's the, the person who relates to God on their behalf, and they say to Samuel, they demand a king from him. Give us a king. And they're asking for a king. It's not just a minor reshuffle a political, organizational thing. It is a major way that the Israelites would then learn to operate 
as a people, and particularly how they then relate to God. And the way, the language that they use throughout this passage that we've looked at of how of asking for a king suggests that they think they don't have a king already. Give us this brand new thing, a king, is the, the tone of how they're asking. But throughout this book so far and the book of Judges, they have a king. They are quite clear in their mind that they have a king. And their king is God. And so in asking for a king, it's not just give us a new government system. They are rejecting God. How has this happened so quickly from the end of chapter 7 to the beginning of chapter 8? God delivering everything they could ever want and then them basically saying, no thanks God. What's happened? Well, to be fair to the Israelites, it wouldn't have just happened like that. They didn't consciously set out to reject God. I'm sure after he started to deliver peace to them with all their enemies, they would have been in worship. God, you have done it all for us. You've delivered us. We'll never forsake you. We'll never turn from you again, God. But then some time passes. And we get some clues in verses 5 and 10. They're not just asking for a king. They're asking for a king like all the other nations have. Time passes their heads get turned, just starts small. Huh. They've got nice chariots over there. Why don't we have nice chariots? <laughs> their walls look so high and safe. I bet we'd be secure in there. I don't feel very safe here. Do you think it's got anything to do with the king that they have? Or the king that they have? Or the king that they... We're the only ones that don't have a king. And it just, before they know it, they never set out to reject God. But it just grows and grows and grows, the, the envy as they look around them. And before they know it, they're in front of Samuel, insulting him and asking for a king. That's how it gets to that point. And it's similar for us, isn't it? It's, it never sets out with a, a desire, I will reject God and then do this. But just speaking from personal experience, I've had plenty of Sundays, I don't know if you have, where I've had an encounter with God or heard something and just thought, this Sunday's the one, God. I'm giving myself over to you. I'll never turn away. I'll never look elsewhere for satisfaction and happiness. And then Monday happens. Oh, there's a new iPhone coming out. Oh, look at the people on the advert. They look so happy. <laughs> Maybe if I have one of those, I will also be happy. And of course, going after something else to try and find that contentment. Then next year. Oh, there's a new one. I know it didn't work last year, but this year maybe. <laughs> I'm sure you could perhaps put yourself in that story. We don't set out to, to reject God, but looking to other sources to fill that discontent. And that's really where the Israelites are at. They're not, they're just losing tr that trust in God that he will be able to deliver everything that they need for satisfaction and happiness. And what it really boils down to, I guess, is two areas. They, they start to lose confidence that God as their king is able to provide everything that they need. And if he's able, that he's then 
cares enough about them that he will and is willing to provide for their needs. That's the source of their discontent. God responds from verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. God there, in particularly mentioning the delivery from Egypt, he's reminding them, he's bringing to mind their history together. And he's reminding them that he's always been faithful to them. That the events of chapter 7 where he's delivered them is not just a one-off fluke event, but has been a consistent pattern of how he's been with them. He's always given himself to these people. And a reminder that he has always had a plan for them. Always had a, a desire in mind, a future in mind of what their lives with him will look like. And in the context of that plan, he has laid out different promises along the road. I will bring you up out of Egypt. I will take you into the promised land. And every single promise that he's made to them, he's come through. He's delivered it. He's done it for them. And interestingly, he has promised them a king. Way back in Deuteronomy, all those years ago, before they had any thought of ever asking for a king, God predicted this very conversation in Deuteronomy 17. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a reminder of a promise, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And then more recently in the early stages of this book that we're looking at, 1 Samuel chapter 2, the end of Hannah's prayer, a song of worship to God. You could almost miss it. The, Lord's will, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. It's all part of the plan. God has gone into print that having a king is part of his plan for the people. But surely this can't be how God brings his king in. We're expecting a king to come, hence the name of the series, the dawn of a kingdom. But surely this could not be the real dawning of the kingdom. This must be some kind of false dawn, if you like. Because this interaction with his people does not look like it is going God's way at all, does it? This does not look like a God implementing his plan. His people are going against him. They are consciously rebelling and rejecting him. We couldn't have it in starker terms. God saying, they have rejected me from being king. Surely this could not be the accomplishment of God's plan. But verse 22, obey their voice and make me a king. And as we'll see in future weeks, this is indeed the dawn of a kingdom. 
And what considering these verses helps us to do is to just lift the cover on one of the most thrilling and beautiful truths of God and who he is and how he relates with his people. And I'll admit from the outset, this is a rather, it's one of the more mind-bending aspects of trying to understand God, but it is so worth it, so we'll have a go, shall we? God has a plan for his people. As we've already seen, he had a plan for the Israelites, he's got a plan for us, and this plan is glorious. It is a plan to make him look wonderful. And it is a plan that is the very best for the whole of humanity. And God's desire is that he shall enact and make this plan happen. And somehow, as God looks to make this, truth, this, this plan happen and enact this plan, he doesn't just set about it himself. Somehow, as we see in this story, he is able to take the brokenness and flawed aspects of humanity, take broken people like these Israelites who are directly going against his wishes, bring in their sinful actions, their rebellion, and their, their, their desire to go against him, and somehow bring all of that and use it to enact his flawless plan. And he doesn't work in spite of the flaws of his people. He doesn't somehow find a creative solution to work around it. Let me tell you how I used to think about how he, God would do these things. You can have a little laugh at me. Because I wouldn't have said this consciously, but actually I realized this is what I believed. I basically believed that God would look at his people, in this case the Israelites, and he would think, right, what have we got? What have we got here? And he would think, oh, not got much good. <laughs> Quite a lot of bad, but there's one or two kind of good aspects. Let's kind of take them out and try and use them and just maybe advance the plan just a little bit. I saw it a little bit like the infinite monkeys, infinite typewriters thing, where there's a thing that if you give an infinite number of monkeys an infinite number of typewriters, one day they will write the, the works of Shakespeare. <laughs> And I basically saw it like that. If you just give an, enough flawed people enough time, eventually they'll do enough good that we'll be able to see the plan through to completion. But that is not how God works at all. He doesn't just use our good. What God is able to do is he somehow, and this is the mind-bending bit, he somehow manages to take the whole of the Israelites or whatever people we're considering, and their brokenness, their disobedience, their rejection, and take the whole lot and turn it into something beautiful and wonderful and not work in spite of it, but actually work through the flawed actions of broken people to achieve his perfect will. He weaves in imperfection and sinful response into his sovereign purposes. 
So is their thinking, is our God King able to provide for our needs? Not only is he showing that he is, of course he's able to provide for their needs. Just look at chapter 7. But he is going ahead of them. And even using their rebellion against him and their rejection of him to continue his great plan that not only brings himself glory, but will be for their future benefit. And we might think, well, surely there's a better way. If, this, if God's plan really is that good, and it really is for the, the very best for humanity and for God, everyone's a winner, surely we just need to get to that point as quick as possible. And it seems very inefficient to use these people who are just milling around doing all sorts of things that go against that plan. Why use the people in the first place? Well, if we look at verses 7 to 9, 7 to 8 again, we'll get an insight into why and how God works even more. And this time, as I read it, try not to think so much about what God's saying, but try and think about what God is feeling. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're also doing to you. There's real pain in the voice of God. I don't know if you can hear it. Pain of his children rejecting him. It's the, the father's love that is being communicated through these words. Some of you might be parents. You might know what it is like to have your child reject you. I don't know if any parent will go through the raising of a child and not feel that keenly at some point. Maybe you felt it time and time again. You know something of what it is like. What God is experiencing here is his, it's not just pawns in a game, his people. He's not just using people for his purposes. He loves these people. He loves the Israelites. And because he loves them, he's giving himself to them. He's giving himself to them. And his love, expressing love, doesn't manipulate. Love doesn't try and control or coerce. I'm loving you so that you will do this. And love certainly doesn't try and force its will on people. And it doesn't demand anything in return. As we've been looking at in our previous teaching series, Generous, God is the great giver. And we can't love genuinely and expect to get something back. This is why God has to accomplish his will through the free will of man. Because he's loving them. And so he just, his, only, his only way to try and get them to come along with him is just to keep loving them, keep loving, keep giving himself to them. And so we see that God's desire, his primary desire, is not to achieve his purposes. He does want to achieve his plan, but his primary desire is not simply to achieve his plan, 
His great longing, his great desire is to achieve his plan by working through the people that he loves. That is what he loves. He doesn't just want to get there. He wants to get there through his people, by loving his people and including them in. He loves to include us. He loves to bring us in. He loves to involve us for his purposes, to do his great joy, to the extent where he will even do that, even if it causes him great pain, as his people turn away. That's what God's experiencing here, the joy of seeing his plan for humanity continue another step closer, but the pain of people rejecting him and turning away from him. And just as God managed to find joy in the whole of who Israel are, and the whole of his people, even their rebellion against him, so he also finds joy in each one of us and the whole of who we are, and the whole of who we are as a people. He doesn't just look for the little bits of good in your life. He doesn't just look for the one or two bits that you think might be acceptable to him. He is able to take every single part of your life and use it for his great purposes and for your benefit. Speaking personally, I can think of many times where I've known God and I, I think I've then actively chosen to, to reject him, turn away and do things that I know are wrong and to be, if I'm honest with you, I think these things should disqualify me. Surely I'm outside now of God's purposes for me. But God says, no, that's, that's not true at all. He not only restores me, but then he's, able, he's used me to help other people who struggled with similar things. That's just one example. It's not just sin that he's able to turn on its head, but everything. Perhaps your life before you knew God, and you think, is God frustrated at me for taking so long to hear his voice and answer his call? Were they just wasted years doing whatever it was that you were doing? No, God uses that. He will have been, he's able to bring that into your whole story and use it. We can often make what we would think of poor life decisions. I didn't give any thought to the will of God when I made that decision. Will he regret that for me as much as I regret that decision myself? Once again, he's able to make something beautiful out of the whole of us to use for his purpose and glory. It's his great wisdom for us and his love for us. that he, he essentially comes to us and he says, with a big smile on his face, what have you got for me? And we might think, oh, not very much. It's not very pretty, quite broken, not much to be proud of. And we kind of tentatively show the Father. And he just says, give it here. Give me what you've got. Whatever it is, 
And as he takes it, he just redeems it and restores it, makes it into something so beautiful that he then is able to weave into his perfect plan and his perfect desire for us that will bring him glory and is for our good. He has such mercy for us where we think there's no way back for me because of this, because of that, because of this action that I did. Just as he did not punish and destroy the Israelites, so he will not punish and destroy us. Not only will he not do that, but he delights in restoring us. One writer, when commenting on this passage, describes this as God's ability to bring true blessings out of the ashes of misguided dreams. Isn't that beautiful? True blessings out of the ashes of misguided dreams. Not one single part of us is wasted when God offers us a way into relationship with him. We are crafted exactly how God wants us to be, and he uses the whole of us. So the Israelites, just as they doubted God as their king, is he able to meet our needs? Is he willing? Well, he, as we look at this passage, he shows himself to be so powerful and so loving towards his people that not only does he meet all of their current needs and provide over and above what an earthly king could provide, but he has gone way before them and is even able to use their disobedience for their good and bring something beautiful out of them actively turning against them, him. And so that might bring to mind just one final question. Should we just follow in Israel's footsteps? Should we just reject God? Israel rejected God. The kingdom began to dawn. Something good came of it. So surely, the more that we reject God, the more the kingdom will dawn. Perhaps a different way of looking at the question, though, is why would we choose to reject God? Rejecting God has its consequences. We don't have time to look at it now, but... Verses 10 through to 18 are the immediate consequences of turning away from God and asking for a king. And God saying just how terrible your life is going to be with this king. And similar for us, if we sin, there are consequences that often make our lives in, in the now much worse. Although there could be pleasure for a season, it always leads to regret and disappointment and discontent. And it then has an impact on the people around us, the people we love. And as we've seen, it has an impact on God. And so there are real consequences to rejecting God. And our desire to reject God always is is exactly the same, really, as the desire that the Israelites had. It comes from a lack of understanding of who God is, how much he loves us, and just how active he is in caring for us and planning for our future. And we have such a greater vantage point now than the Israelites had, particularly in seeing just what God is up to with his creation. 
They had their history that they perhaps could have done a better job of learning from and considering. But we now stand not only with their history in mind, but we can see some of what was ahead for them. And as the kingdom begins to dawn, we'll meet the first two kings. And we'll meet King Saul and we'll meet King David in the coming weeks and see how God's love just continues to flow and continues to be merciful and patient with flawed people. And not only is he merciful to them, but uses them for his purpose. King David, a flawed king in many ways. But then how this kingdom that David ruled over was merely just a forerunner, a foreshadowing of the king that is to come. And that through David's line of many more flawed individuals would come the unflawed one, would come the Christ, the king, the king that the Israelites and indeed we have been longing for, the king that would come and establish his kingdom, a kingdom where there would be no turning of heads to find contentment elsewhere, because in this kingdom, all are captivated by the king, the one who has, is the source of joy, the source of safety and security, a kingdom where all needs are met, the deepest needs of our hearts, not the superficial felt needs. The kingdom that has come through Christ. A kingdom that has come, but as I'm sure we're all aware of, it hasn't yet fully come. It's why we still struggle. But every time we say yes to Jesus, every time we say yes to his kingdom, his kingdom continues to dawn. Every time we say no to the destructive and damaging power of sin, the kingdom advances. Every time we refuse to turn our heads and be drawn in by whatever it is that causes us to turn away from him, his kingdom continues to dawn. And it doesn't just benefit us as we say yes to Jesus, but it delights God. No longer when we say yes to Jesus is it a dual, complex emotion for God as he experiences the joy of seeing his purposes happen, but the pain of his people rejecting him. When we say yes to following Jesus, it is simply delight from God. A delight that we are responding to his love in the way that he always hoped that we would. That we're choosing to line ourselves up with him and enjoy the benefits of his kingdom. Rick. <laughs>